Welcome to Shelter in Place. I'm Alan Combs. And I'm Christine Porch. The theme of today's episode is, bless you, I won't do what you tell me. Let's hunker down. Today in the podcast, we'll be talking to the Reverend Dr. Amy Laura Hall, who is an ordained elder in the United Methodist Church, who's been teaching at Duke University since 1999. And it is a very full conversation, wouldn't you say, Christine? Yeah. And but So before we get into it, I do want to say... Welcome back to the podcast, Christine. I know, Christine. I know. I needed, a, I needed a, a couple weeks break. Plus, nobody wants me talking about technology. Oh, yeah. Well, fair enough. So, but anyways, we're glad to have you back, but we are very excited about this conversation with Amy Laura, so we want to jump right into it. So we're going to jump into it right after the break. SipTequila.com is a curated collection of high-end tequilas that can be shipped directly to your door. From crystal clear Blanco tequilas to older tequilas aged for six years in red wine barrels, SipTequila.com has something for everyone, novices and aficionados alike. Their white glove delivery service gets the bottles to you safely and securely with their very cute lids wherever you are in the United States. When your bottle arrives, follow along with their tasting notes and education for the full agave experience. Shop, ship, and sip with SipTequila.com. Mention that you heard this on our podcast with code SHELTER, S-H-E-L-T-E-R, and you'll get free shipping. SipTequila.com. Welcome back to Shelter in Place. We are here with the Reverend Dr. Amy Laura Hall, and uh, we are glad to have you with us, uh, uh, Dr. Hall. Uh, the first question that we always ask our friends when we have them on the podcast is who you are, what you do, where you are sheltering, and who you are sheltering with. My name is Amy Laura Hall, and I am... In Cedar Park, Texas, which is a, what do you call a suburb of a suburb of a suburb (laughs) of Austin. And I've been sheltered in place. I've been hunkered down since March 6th or 7th uh, because I came during Duke's spring break to help care for my parents during my mother's recovery from a triple bypass and a stroke. They Mm. happened in very quick succession in late January. And so I came during spring break to help for a week. I was here for two weeks right after the triple bypass and stroke in late January. And I came back thinking for a week I could be helpful just buying groceries, getting things ready not knowing what I was getting ready for. So I've been here since uh, March 6th or 7th and with my parents in what I've now come to call Texlandia. <laughs> so um, so were you, when you came down, you basically sort of figured they were going to need the help. And when did you find out you were going to have to like distance teach from, from Duke? Oh, wait, let me be clear. I did not, I I was so busy trying to keep track of my classes while worrying about my mom here, just, just doing my first rodeo. So, so I'll, I'll give you the phrase I've been saying is that it's my first rodeo. And then it became also my first circus during a hurricane. So it was my first rodeo. I just came to take care of my mom. I was like, yada, 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 pandemic, heard that before, I'm teaching global health, I know pandemics, like, ah, yeah, whatever, like, I'm going to wash my hands a lot, I'll be fine. It was only after I got here that 
it started registering, wait a minute, this is not gonna be like Ebola. Like this is gonna be a different kind of situation. And my dad, right after I got here, said it's gonna be like 1918. And I, I texted several friends in the sciences to say, is this gonna be like 1918? And they said, oh gosh, no, no, nothing like 1918. And last week I asked my dad, how did you know? And he said, because he, my dad talks very slowly. So he said something like, Amy, well, I guess I heard stories of what it was like then. And so I did not know I was coming to help buy groceries during a pandemic. I was just wow. coming, I was just coming to be helpful after my mother's. So it was my first rodeo. It was my first time to, to well, January started the rodeo. It was my first time physically to take care of one of my parents. Hmm. And so I, I didn't, I didn't know I was coming during a pandemic. I had, I had no, I mean, I had a, I didn't have any idea. So, you know, we've talked a lot about um, the displacement of this whole COVID-19 period, how it's been very psychologically displacing and obviously physically displacing. And in your circumstance, you're actually displaced from your home in your parents' home. You know, how are you experiencing that, that idea of displacement and, you know, basically where are you finding comfort in the middle of that <laughs> well if, if i if i could reliably turn you around to see the little birds in the backyard here i would but, um i my my dad is a retired minister he, he's barely retired because he can't stand being retired um because he's once a pastor always a pastor it turns out that's the case for some people uh but there are two little goldfinches he's there's a beautiful tree in their backyard and my dad started it started basically i hope he wouldn't mind my saying this pastoring the birds like he was <laughs> he was coming outside and feeding the birds and they they obviously love him and love this space so i've been refeeding the birds like refilling the bird feeders and there are two i wish i could I wish I could show you right now. There are two little goldfinches, and they are—they are—they are barely social distancing <laughs> for me. Like they're—they're they're really close. They're two little goldfinches, and they're just bright yellow. They're amazing bright yellow, and there have been several blue jays, and we've seen some cardinals. And this is a—it's a tiny little backyard. It, it's a very small backyard, but yeah, the birds—the birds have been helping a lot, and also hula hooping. I hula hoop. Bird. I don't do yoga. I can't. I tried yoga. I can't do it. Well, if you hula hoop, you need to come to Floyd Fest. You'll fit right in. <laughs> to what? Floyd Fest. You know, there's a huge music festival that's probably going to get canceled this year. It's just going to devastate me. But there's lots of hula hooping at Floyd Fest. It's kind of like, right? I, I feel like Floyd Fest is kind of like Merle Fest. Or... Wait, yeah. Wait, it's also like, I feel like what the wild goose people tried to base some of their stuff on was like, like, you know, which, which, you know, I mean, like Floyd oh. Fest is just like, well, I mean, but I mean, Floyd Fest has a, like the same, I mean, I, I, we went to Floyd Fest last year. We enjoyed it, but there is sort of the same thing where it's like, whereas like wild goose is sort of like sort of using Christian culture 
Floyd Fest sort of uses hippie culture in certain yeah. ways, right? So it's like, oh, gotcha. you know, we're at Floyd Fest. Also, the Virginia Lottery has a booth. Like, and you're <laughs> like, well, okay. Like, <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. it's a lot of fun, but let's, you know, it is what it is. And, and it's it's great. It, 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 we, had, we had a great time last year. But yeah, it's, I mean, it's got the same kind of vibe. Everybody camps out in the woods and listens to music all the time. And I'll just say, I went once to, oh, what's it called? It's a, it's a big um, leaf. Leaf. Oh yeah, leaf. We've leaf. been there. Joey and I took the girls there when they were little. <laughs> if you have to pee outside and you don't know that before you leave, <laughs> so oh, you yeah. take like pants, like you you take. And then people kept saying, "Well, be careful because bears." Because we 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 set up a tent far <laughs> enough away that I was like, "Okay, I can pee outside without you know." accidentally being on video peeing outside right. anyway you i know they, they make gear pooping, for that much less pooping what <laughs> they make gear for that yeah they've yeah, it's gotten kind of advanced because yeah because we had we had people in our in our you know they, they actually had like a, a little a little, to, a little toilet they could use in their tent and then like the husband would like take would out tre- the... would, would take out the 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 leftovers <laughs> you know <laughs> I just need to find me a husband. That's right. Take out That's the right. Leftovers. Yeah. Yeah, so. Some people take out their own leftovers, that was, but, that, yeah, but that, that one was, particular friend. That was not me. I have no leftovers. problem with porta potties. I'm good with all of that. Yeah. Oh, I was okay with porta potties. It was just that the porta potties were the way far away. Yeah. No, it, the Leaf Festival that year, there weren't enough porta potties. Uh, yeah. So the porta potties that were had like these long lines in the middle of the night. If you were gonna, mm. anyway, I I didn't mean to. It's okay. It's okay. We're good with diversions. We're good on yeah. that stuff. Yeah. It turns out as I, as I taught my daughters when they were young, everybody pees and everybody poops. Yeah, so it turns right. out that talking about pee and poop is just part of having a body. Yeah, that's right. Sort of thinking about you are, you're displaced, you're, you're in Texas. And then Duke tells you that you, okay, now you're expected to sort of distance teach. How, what, what was that like having to figure out how to approach that? Oh, okay. So figuring out how to approach teaching online. Well, it, it was, there were, there were a series of conversations here in the house that I'm sheltering in, hunkered down in with my parents. And so the, the, the first set of conversations were super awkward because I think, honestly, my dad was not totally comfortable with the fact that I was registering and that Duke was registering that this pandemic is serious, mm. serious, scary stuff. So I, I started telling them, I think I may have to stay here. I don't think it's going to be safe for me to fly on an airplane. And my mom is still recovering from her stroke. So she also, I think was not they in different, very different ways. And, and, and my dad has had his own heart issues since I got here, um, which I won't go into it, but that's why I say it was my first rodeo. And then it became my first circus Mm. during a hurricane. Um, but yeah, so the first conversations were really awkward because I was trying not to scare them, but to let them know that it wasn't going to be safe for me to go back on an airplane. Because if I went back on an airplane, for sure, I wouldn't be responsible coming back to care for them again in April, which is what I'd scheduled to do. I'd scheduled a week in March and then two weeks in April 
so, and then I was going to extend it in April if I could. So when I got the message from Duke, it was also kind of complicated because Duke University had one policy. Duke Divinity School then sent out uh, an email that was not contradictory, but sort of governor, mayor mm. situation. Sort of incongruent in certain ways. Incongruent and passive aggressive. <laughs> I just said that. Yeah. You know yeah. what? Yeah. I have tenure. It was passive aggressive. <laughs> it was passive aggressive. I, I, I received a message from the Divinity School that was different. It was not extended spring break. We are not extending spring break. We we're doing something else, but it was it. So there were, I had different orders from different bosses because I teach across the university at right. this point. I teach in different departments. I, I, I teach across the university. So I decided to go with what the president of the university said and decided to hunker down, not try to go back and be here. But part of what I was dealing with also was my parents' anxiety or concerns about my disobeying orders because sure. I made the mistake of saying, oh my gosh, y'all aren't going to believe this, but we're getting different different orders from different bosses. And uh, so I then tried to figure out how am I going to teach online? And I contacted several different students just to ask, are you comfortable with your internet connection? Where are you? And the first responses I received were so negative, so scared, wow. concerned about their ability. They did, some of them did not have any form of camera on their, on their computers. Some of them did not have a, their laptops with them because students traveled all sorts of different places. Right. Um, I had students in other countries. And so the first responses I received were so concerned that they were gonna fail the class or yeah, their, their first responses were so negative. And I kept their confidentiality because I didn't want to expose students in ways, I didn't want to make students feel awkward if they heard from another student through a text or an email. I had said students were having trouble. It, it was only two weeks ago, I think, maybe three weeks ago, when I acknowledged to another student that other students were having trouble because they were obviously all trying to curate sure. their, they were trying to like manage their, their public face online about their experience of this pandemic. So, so Alan, my, my, my long answer, but I can put this in a very clear way. I've been trying to help students feel brave enough to say, I need help. Sure, you're right. Yeah. Things are not easy here. I do not have Zoom. I do not have this, that, or the other thing because students have been, have been I'll risk saying this, students have been feeling like they have to lie to one another online about their access for online education. That's interesting because, you know, we spoke to two college students um, two 
three podcasts ago, right? Yeah. And there, right about that time, there was an article in the New York Times or Washington Post, I don't remember which, that, that was describing how this the online education, it's resulted in exposing a disparity, right? So that college for, for a lot of kids or grad school, whatever, was a, a, an equalizing force. They all had the same sort of resources. They were in the same classroom. And then when COVID hit and everybody went to distance learning, all of a sudden you're dealing with home environments that are not ideal or resources that are not ideal and exposes a fundamental inequity in access um, that, that, in some ways, college remedies. Right. And then I think, Amy Laura, you put a, a, the other day on Facebook, there was another New York Times article that talked about that from the perspective of teachers, that it's not just students, right? But there, yes. you know, there, there is teachers who are pulling into the parking lot of the school with their kids in the back, you know, and the kids are doing homework and the, and the, the, the teacher's working on homework. You know, that, that oh, yeah. those are both happening. Mm-hmm. Yes. Alan, I... I I actually have been sending when I've been when I've been responding to 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 requests for faculty meetings where I'm supposed to log in and then participate reliably with a whole situation going on like with with my internet. Um, I've been responding just gently saying I don't know that I'll be able to secure reliable internet to participate in such a complex where we're going back and forth and things in part because I've also been dealing with my first rodeo and a circus. Um, so yeah, I've been, I've been reporting, hello, I do not have completely reliable internet unless I go outside. Yeah. And so, but I've been, I've been registering that in part because I, I feel like I need to explain the truth. I mean, I think it's a good question though, because like we had we, the, the last the episode last week, the, um, the, when we had this, we had the, uh, the, the chief technical officer of a, of a company that, that did, I don't know how to explain it. Cause I'm not a technical person, but anyways, Dave Messenger, te- Dave Messenger, but anyway, tech guy, what, that was one of the things that came up for us was like for his company, right. That it's a, it's a sort of a community based model where people sort of, they do work, they put out to the community and the, the community does work. But what we were talking about in other cases where, you know, where, what, what is the level of justice when you sort of say to people like, hey, you have to work at home and your internet has to be this fast, right? Because we've run into that even with the church, you know, where we all have different levels of internet. There, well, you know, some people have DSL internet, some people live in the city of Salem, some people live in Roanoke County. And, and is it fair to just to say, you have to have this kind of internet and also you have to pay for it yourself. Like, or if you want it to be faster, you've got to deal with that. And, and, and I, and I don't think a lot of people have good answers for that kind of thing. Well, and the difference is businesses are going to be providing that to their employees. Right. But I think that one of the things with colleges and universities right. is the disparity sure. of resources totally. or not the disparity, but the lack of resources that, you know, the dollars that it will require to provide equity. Right. Right. Is different. It's a different equation for higher ed yes. centers. Yes, so much so. So um, I I would have to find it. Is I don't know if it's okay for me to ask y'all to look this up, but there's a I, I've been posting it repeatedly, and I I will post it again on my social media. But there was there was an essay very early on. I think it was the first. I think it was the week of spring break. And one of the things I will say is I did not get a spring break because it was like midweek here that. It became clear that we were going to start moving to online education, and I was like, "I just 
need to focus on my parents, much less have a spring break. But, but yes, the course, the course, the, the essay about teaching online that I highly recommend is please teach your class I think it's called, online. It's called, please do a bad job of putting your courses online. I Thank you. I found it. Thank I found you. It. Thank you. Please do a bad job of teaching your class online. Exactly. So what is, what is it about? It is, it is about, it is about why if you try to do this well, you're going to scare your students. You possibly are going to be breaking the law because you're going to be breaking contracts with your students that they signed. Like if they did not sign up for an online class, you can't require them to go online. It's against the law. I, I mean, she, she breaks it down in such a pragmatic, prudent, clear way. And some legal scholars also, although their work is not being celebrated, some legal scholars have been noting that if you require students to be on Zoom, you're dealing with confidentiality issues because Zoom has, has issues with, um, with uh, Privacy, yeah, right. yeah. Uh, so, so various different educators have been trying to sound, not sound the alarm, but, but at least bring caution to the situation. So I've been spending a lot of time on the phone individually with students, like just sure. on the phone, just having conversations on the phone with individual students. Hmm. And also email, lots of email, lots of low tech. That was one of the things she wrote in that essay that um, please teach your online class badly. But I think, right? you know, I mean, I, I mean as, as, as much as you've tried to teach it badly, I, I have actually enjoyed when you, your recordings on Facebook just because I haven't, I haven't been able to go to a lecture of yours in a long time. And it is kind of fun to, to, to hear you teach and to have you teach us how to say Kierkegaard right. Which I probably said. He, is, he has been waiting to bring this up the entire Isn't podcast. Isn't that fun, Cookie Guard? <laughs> cookie Guard. Some, some smart, some smart person. Your generation, <laughs> y'all's generation. I couldn't wait. I couldn't resist. It's a good thing that I had marginal interest since I was a philosophy and theology minor, but that was where it stopped. Was yeah. when no. he's like, "I'm going to bring up how you say Kierkegaard." I couldn't resist. I just, it, it, it is what it is, you know. So what? It's, what do you think the long-term effects are going to be on on higher ed? Um, whether at the undergrad or the grad school level of the transition that everybody's been forced to make? Oh, uh, can I go back to the funny thing about how funny y'all's generation is? Oh, sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, no, I just, I just wanted fully to acknowledge that the sense of humor that, uh, the sense of humor, um, given that I've, I've been, I have not had social interactions with other human beings um, besides my parents, who I love very much and who have their own senses of humor, each of them individually. That uh, Twitter in the middle of the night, in the middle of the night when I wake up and I'm worried and I'm anxious and I've got pandemic brain, like I've got, I've got hypervigilance. Yeah, that happened to me last night too. And I noticed you were on Twitter at the same time I was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, somehow I feel more comfortable being on Twitter in the middle of the night than Facebook. I sure. feel like that my Facebook friends are going to judge me for being on Facebook in the middle of the night. Whereas Twitter is weird enough that it's, it's a weird place. It's okay to be awake in the middle of the night. But I, 
I've been waking up hyper vigilant, and it, it's it's partly because I'm rodeo circus hurricane. I'm I'm dealing with so many different things, um, but the sense of humor it, that people like 10, 20, 30 years younger than I am because I'm fifty whatever. What am I now? Fifty. I was born in nineteen sixty eight. This is so the best, my, by the way, because you just put me squarely in Alan's generation, and I'm really in yours. Because <laughs> I'm only four years younger than you. But since oh, I'm so young, yeah, I'm so youthful, yeah. clearly. Well, it's good, because when we, when we interviewed the college students, I've, <laughs> I have never felt older. Because yeah, we were talking like, about, like, remember when we got an email in college? And they yeah. were like, what? Yeah, <laughs> But it was funny, because when you first said, you know, y'all's generation, I thought, yeah, that is going to be awesome, because if she's placing me squarely in Alan's generation, then I am clearly, I clearly must be doing my oil of Olay correctly. <laughs> I placed you squarely. Ah, see, I'm just so youthful. In, it's true. I, it's, in fact, Christian, you really keep me young. Oh, that's exactly right. <laughs> and then there's poor Joey. And poor Joey. Poor Joey. <laughs> she ages Joey and keeps yeah, me young. I age Joey. <laughs> sorry, sorry to interrupt you, but I just was enjoying that no, too much. I could see it in your face no. that you were like, "Oh, she's, I was calling, like, she's calling me I, I an know. Alan's generation." <laughs> oh, I love it. No, this is this is actually like one one of the things I'm thinking is possibly maybe online things where it's only a few people. Like I, I can do this. Sure. I I can do I can do this. What I can't do is the larger right. it's chaos room thing like all all the yeah i mean i can do it i've 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 been doing it but uh i don't know and i don't think anybody who anybody who tells you they know what's going to happen in the next year is uh, trying to get a contract for a ted talk thank you because i i mean i that was part of what was keeping me up last night is like, I woke up in the other night, my, our, one of our kids came in the room and like, you know, they slinked into the bed and, and then I was like getting hit in the face. So I got up and tried to go somewhere else. And then I just opened up Twitter and it was just like a deluge of like, of like the next year. And like, I, I like, I, I, it sent me racing because like, it was like just in time for things to start up in Europe, like the news cycles to start up in Europe. So I just started uh-huh, getting like, uh-huh. like uh-huh. this is going to be the worst economic downturn ever. Like, and stuff. And I was like, it is going to be. And I was just like freaking out. And I was just like downstairs in the living room by myself freaking out. And, and then I thought about it like this morning when I, when I like finally got back up and I was like, I don't have any idea what's going to happen. Like, no. you know, no, no one knows. I think, I mean, I think that's, I, I actually think it's like, that's actually like a little, sometimes it freaks me out to not know. And sometimes it's good news to me to know, not know, because I realize people are just like think, writing think pieces because they got to write about something. Yes. Yes, exactly. So, so yeah, yeah. One thing, one thing that's been very clear is that uh, scientists who who work on epidemiological models, who are saying, here's what we think is gonna happen. They don't, they don't get an interview. Um, but if they say, here's what we really think is gonna happen, then they get an interview. So, they're, so, so scientists who are trying to be cautious and careful, because they don't know, they don't right. know. I mean, it's like, it's like if somebody asked you, Alan, like, okay, no, it's not the same, but I'll just, I'll, <laughs> I'll risk saying this. I'll risk saying this. If some little kid says, please explain the Trinity to me. 
and you say, well, here's what the Trinity is like. And you say it in a soothing, assured, authoritative male voice. And here I right. could go on and on about how like the Cuomo thing in New York. <laughs> right. If you've, got a, if you've got an authoritative male voice leading people through this, clearly it's complicated. But here's the best metaphor that will help explain God is a trinity. I mean, if somebody's talking like that, they're full of shit. They're full of shit. <laughs> my, 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 they're full I, I, of shit. And you, so the scientists, the scientists were saying <laughs> that we know. Yeah, right. we, we, we have a sense that this is most likely the way things are going to go. They're full of shit. Like, they don't know. They're, yeah. they're doing their best. They're doing their best during a situation where, where they don't know. They so, don't know. I, well, anyways, we 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 could keep going on that. But. So I I have no idea. I have no idea what's going to happen. Well, I think and, that's and fine to say. I, I I I will say though. I will say. I will say. I have no idea in part because I do not know how much of an influence the Gates Foundation, hmm. the Bezos family. Bezos, how do we say his name? The DeVos family. I don't know how much oligarchs who are terrified of actual student activism and actual student, like the, exactly the dynam dynamic you named where, where public education and college education and university education is an equalizer where people are in the same classroom and noting things, learning things from one another. I don't know how much the oligarchs have been tracing this pattern where people are learning across class and race lines and how much they've invested. But I will say that Young Life, for example, Young Life started, and I've, I've been writing a book about this for a long time, but Young Life, the organization started in part as, well, in large part, as a response to the student anti-war and civil rights movements going on in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. So, so I, I pray, I hope that the oligarchs are not so intertwined with the funding of universities that we're going to be moving to online in ways that we shouldn't. But it, because it, it's been hard for me to gauge, because Duke, Duke University does not have a giant endowment. We are not Yale. We are not Harvard. Um, Yale and Harvard have been, have been working in ways that are really creepy also. But, um, I don't know. I don't know how many universities and colleges are dependent on money that is connected to the oligarchic money that is determined to make sure that people do not cross the boundaries of race and class and gender identity who are trying to figure out how to keep a, a lid on the anti-war civil rights movement but I, I'm trying not to be pessimistic, um, 
but if I think the bad guys, if I were like, okay, if I were a really bad guy, what would I do? I'd buy up all the local journalism. I'd buy up the universities. I'd buy up the churches. I'd buy up the seminaries. Like if I know that, if I know that if I were a really bad guy, I would do all those things. You've got to believe they already know that. Right. So I am, I am praying that we are not looking at that scenario because the bad guys also want their kids to go to universities where they look good. And right. the bad guys did not try to get their way into online universities. So I, I have to hope that the whole Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, Yale thing is enough of an allure right. that, makes that we are not looking at the total online um, takeover. Um, but it's it, at Duke. It's been it's been it's been coming for years. As some professors who are big names, Peter Fever, Peter Fever, who's the head of and this is notable, American Grand Strategy. So Duke has a center, a big giant thing called American Grand Strategy. Peter Fever is the head of American Grand Strategy, and he teaches. I think he teaches all of his classes in this way where students log in, they watch his lectures. I don't know if they change or not, but then they feel lucky to have had one lunch with him. And that's at Duke. And that's wow. been going on for years. Well, I, I appreciate your, your thoughts on that. Cause I think that, I think that's, yeah, I think that's um, a lot to sort of digest. I, one thing I wanted to make sure we got at before we finished was, um, is, you know, sort of to broaden things out a little bit. One thing you've been talking a lot, I've seen you talking a lot about on social media is sort of the way the media is using sort of us versus them narratives to sort of frame what's happening right now. So, you know, there are images of, you know, someone with a MAGA hat with their head out of a pickup truck yelling at someone in scrubs. That was the and, first and, one I saw. Right. And that picture just keeps circulating. And so it's sort of like you said, like, they're only going to interview a scientist if they say this is what's going to happen. They're also going to look for that image, not an image of people who are trying to be good to each other and in charity to each other, try to stay home and take care of each other. They're going to want they They want the image of the protester screaming in the police face. They want the image of the, of the doctor or nurse versus the MAGA hat kind of yeah. person. And so can you talk a little bit more just about that narrative and why, why you think that's happening? Yeah. So it's happening um, in part because it's a well-funded effort. And this is, this is now, it's in the, when I saw yesterday, I think it was in the New York Times, maybe it was right. this morning. So I was like, okay, people will stop thinking I'm crazy for saying this is AstroTurf. It is not grassroots. As soon as, so I saw that video, I think it was on Twitter. And then I saw all these different responses from local news media wanting to, to, to capture, to, to have to, to use that video um, of that one woman leaning out of a pickup truck yelling. And one, uh, I think it was a male nurse, a man. Right, a man, yeah. Um, With a mask in, on in and their scrubs and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, and as soon as I saw that, I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. There are so many women driving in pickup trucks who were going to be nurses in places. Why didn't they interview that woman 
going into a hospital, not that individual woman, but a, a, a white woman who is driving in a pickup truck, who's trying to figure out how to union organize, how to get a labor union at her hospital. Why didn't they talk to her? Why are they showing us this? And I was like, this, I smell a rat. And so I started thinking this was AstroTurf by watching how these memes were happening. And sure enough, the, there are major funders who are funding, giving people money, like Bloomberg. Like Bloomberg didn't come up with this, like, because Bloomberg's brilliant. It's a thing where people with a gazillionaires will pay people to, to say words, like pay people because people are desperate. So Bloomberg paid people in North Carolina, paid black people in particular, African-American people to walk around saying Bloomberg may not be so bad. I mean, it was happening in my, I mean, I'm not making this up. It was actually happening and I'm not going to name names, but it was actually happening in North Carolina during the primary. And so this, this kind of thing where you pay people to spread a particular kind of message on social media, and now it's, now it's documented enough that I'm not being treated like I'm Hank Hill's neighbor, that's <laughs> a reference to King of the Hill, that I'm not, I'm not being Propane and propane accessories. Neighbor. Huh? Propane and propane accessories. Yes, yes, exactly. So I'm not being treated like I'm Hank Hill's crazy neighbor. He wasn't crazy all the time. He often was saying things that were true. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's so people, Alan, I'll put it this way. Interracial populism must be genuinely dangerous. If the gazillionaires are spending this much money and this much effort to make sure that people feel divided from one another at this time. Also, there's a kind of classism going on where it's not, I don't want it, to, it's a kind of, when people are afraid, sometimes people will figure out who do they feel safest being distant from. Right. And white Episcopal women generally feel uncomfortable saying that they're uncomfortable around brown people. So they will feel more comfortable saying, look at these horrible white working class people, or look at these at least weird working class white people. The, the word that a woman who was interviewed on, on the media, WUNC did a, did a, no, I'm sorry, WNYC, WNYC on the media podcast did an interview with a woman, and I'm sorry not to remember her name, but the word she used for why this whole like supposed protest thing has been news, or she didn't use the word clickbait, I don't think, but what the word she used was ultra. And I don't know how to say that word. I, I barely know French, but um, I think it's a French word. Outre, O-U-T-R-E. That was the word that the woman they were interviewing about this whole, like trying to get people to pay attention to a tiny, tiny protest started out. And it was that it was more outre, or however you say that word, than 
the May Day protests. So people were sharing all sorts of memes about people in MAGA hats. And I was like, does anyone know that a giant international thing is going on where people who are working are walking out on May 1st? It, it just, it, it's, it's because it's, it's, it's both the media is controlled by Lex Luthor. So Lex <laughs> right. Luthor yeah. bought the Daily Planet. Lex Luthor bought the Daily Planet. All the Lex Luthers are buying the De Daily Planet. And also that a certain demographic of people who are lonely and online are looking for ways that they can feel safer by by seeing other people as as other i i hate using right that no but i think you're right because you'll see you'll see on twitter like you know that people have started like there'll be like sort of a juxtaposition of like a picture of a bunch of people on a beach in florida and then a, a supposedly really progressive person is just sort of says i'm just sipping my tea watching them and it's kind of like no 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 that 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 doesn't work either just to sit back and be like yeah y'all go ahead out there and get yourselves killed like that that's not charitable either it, it's a, just a different version of the same kind of hate you know yeah but i just think we've seen it much longer than just this right oh, sure, i think yeah. it's just totally. another version of the same oh, yeah. kind of this the same dialectic yes. we've heard for 4 or 5 years now absolutely and that it is the same systemic problems that are that oh, are absolutely. driving it and i mean i'm and i think the part that troubles me the most and i'm not going to go off on young life although i desperately want to right now just lawrence wright who is a pulitzer prize winning journalist so he's won a Pulitzer Prize for writing about religious cults. When he's interviewed and asked why he writes about religious cults, he says it's because he grew up with young life in Fort Worth, I think it was, in the Metroplex. I think I remember you posting that because I think I sent it to Christine. Yeah, yeah. Lawrence Wright. <laughs> but but I mean, here's the, the, well, book, here's my the issue. book on Scientology. But just, yeah. just, just in case it helps, it helped me to... to oh, no, I, I don't need any more fodder for my young life hate yeah so she's with me. you i'm with oh, you no it's okay i just thought if you're dealing with other people who are like what are you hating on young no life? i don't care I, I don't like right. most other people so it's okay but <laughs> but here is i have i have my my gang but here is what i was getting at is that to me one of the things that's the most difficult in this us versus them thing is that there is this church movement which is i'm going to go have church in a public space whether that is in my car or whether that is, you know, people social distancing at 10 feet apart. And it becomes this, it becomes a false dichotomy between sort of the Christian charity model, which is it is charitable to remain distanced at right. this moment, and a different kind of, this, this kind of ethos of I'm being persecuted by not being allowed to gather, which I think is fundamentally insane, right? Because there is, in fact, no Christian persecution going on with COVID. This is just fundamentally a, hey, can we not gather in groups of, you know, 10 or more? Right. And that's with me being super familiar with like Chuck Colson and his work in the U.S. prisons to basically try to minimal, you know, try to basically create systems where Christians could meet in larger congregations because they were combating the influence of Islam within prisons. So I'm aware of that idea, but I also am, yeah, I'm also very aware that like 
this isn't that, right? Right, right. That's, I think that's right. I mean, because, I mean, that's, I got, I mean, I went on our live stream, I just got up and said on a sermon, like, cause I was like, I think it just needs to be said. I looked right at the camera and I said, we are not being persecuted. This is, this is Christian love to care for the most vulnerable. And I, and, yes. and what, and what sort of gets to the heart of what we're saying in terms of the division is I had people from across the political spectrum send me messages later that day and say, thank you for saying that. And reinforcing that. I mean, people who I know are much more conservative than I am sort of responding affirmly, yes, no, we're staying home because it's the right thing to do for people, not because there's some version of, you know, Governor Northam's not trying to crush the church in some way in in Virginia. Um, Instead, we're we're doing what needs to be done in order to care for vulnerable people. And that's, I mean, I said that I have like a little prayer live stream every day. I said, if this isn't good news to poor people, if this isn't good news to sick people, if it's not good news to oppressed people, it's not good news. It's not the gospel. Yes. And so if we're going to talk about reopening the church, one of the first rubrics has to be, how does it affect vulnerable people? And, and I, and I, and the, the other narrative I hear is like, no, 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 we need to be tough. Right. It's sort of like the masculinity stuff. Like, you know, I'm not going to wear a mask. Right. I'm not wearing a mask. Like only wussies wear masks, and I'm like, no, that, that no, that's not what this is about because it's not about how tough you are. If if you if you look at my Facebook page, I only have one friend because my my page is completely public, and I only have one friend who periodically will post a succinct counter kind of balance to something I'm saying and he's he's said a few things on my Facebook page and I know I've got people in my life who are like who is this man why is he commenting in this way this is somebody who's a former student from way back way way back who part of what he's looking at in, in right now right now is ways, ways that surveillance, ways that camera surveillance, video surveillance, ways that surveillance is functioning. He's ex-military and he's thinking about questions of which, also which, um, actually now I'm realizing I've got several friends who are, who are posting these kinds of things, which businesses are going to go out of business, completely out of business, if we go for another four months, five months out, and which businesses will still be afloat. And that is something that economists, economists, whatever, but that's something that politic people who pay attention to politics and economy and regional economies are also thinking about. So I am, I, I, I'll put it this way, I'll put it this way. I, it, again, going back to, I don't think we've talked about puce, the color puce officially <laughs> right. online, but, but in North Carolina, we are not a purple state. We are a puce, P-U-C-E state. It, it, it very much depends on the lighting and the perspective. If you're looking at a, a, a puce um, piece of glass, it very much depends on your lighting and your perspective. So one of the memes that I saw a lot of my Episcopal older, my age woman friends posting was, you're shouting about wanting to get your hair done. You're not thinking about the people who are doing your hair. And it was actually something snappier and more clever or something like that. But I was thinking, I know people who are working in salons who are 
desperately hoping that we will be on a shorter timeline because otherwise they're not going to be able to keep their salon going. So do I want our economy to be like that? God, no. But it is so much more complicated than, than who's wearing a mask, who's not wearing a mask, what kind of mask people are wearing. It's, I, 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 as I've, I've written several times now in the last month or so, when I go to the grocery store, I am seeing women in Eileen Fisher expensive loungewear and men with MAGA hats trying to figure out how to make sure that we're all getting through the checkout line carefully and kindly with one another. And that is not being shown. The, the mainstream, that is not ultra. I wish I could know how to pronounce that name, <laughs> that word, that word. That's not, that's not, that's not exciting. That's not exciting. And it's happening. And I, I, but I, I do want fully to support y'all as a congregation not to do anything before, like you said, if the, if the, the most vulnerable person in your congregation is not feeling safe coming to church, you're just going to make them feel like shit if you're having church and they can't come. Like if you can't, if you can't, like if you can't be in person with people who are, who are feeling stuck and scared and they then feel like, well, the only way I can go and be with people is to, is to, is to get myself to a setting where churches, churches don't have the same, they don't have the same health requirements as Sonic drive through Right. <laughs> right. Right. Like Sonic drive through has somebody coming to make sure that people are keeping the, the health enforcements in place. If churches are ready for the health inspectors to come in, oh, that'll be interesting. Like, yeah, real it, interesting, that's yeah. the reason why you can go to Sonic and not a church. The objection I have to that is uh, the objection I have to um, this idea that churches are being persecuted by being closed, right, is that then when the church reopens and has services, because let's be honest, we all want to be in church, right? Absolutely. Um, and I mean, I miss our church family. I miss seeing people. I miss hugging people. I'm a big hugger, um, much to some people's chagrin. But, you know, the, the point I'm making is there is not a kind of exceptionalism in having services. And that is, I think, what I object to. It's this idea, it would be no different than saying there is an exceptionalism that separates restaurants one from the other or hair salons one from the other, right? There is no sense of solidarity in this among Christians. And it, it is troubling because the, it turns it into an us versus them. So then what are we supposed to do as a church? Feel pressure to, to, to recongregate so that we can maintain what we feel like is our sense of community, right? And not have that usurped? That's, that's silly, right? But my point is the us versus them isn't just being created by media. It's being created by principled ideological well, just ideologues, right, who are intent on having a particular perspective of Christianity, a perspective that is certainly not one I agree with, but that actually ends up 
creating a native us versus them within church communities. Does that make sense? Right. So the church yes. that's having services becomes the principled us, right? Yes. And then the churches that are not having services out of a different Christian ethic, right? One that I think is much more valid and much more authentic right. is basically being called the them, right? And so if you want to be part of us, right? It's a little like Young Life. If you want to be part of us, come to, come to us, right? And it's absolutely oh, wow. patently silly, right? Because if, I, yeah, I mean, I have a major objection to that. Like basically you're, you know, you're pilfering off my church, back off, right? Oh, that's happening. And see, I, I haven't, I, and because, because I haven't had much time to, to actually visit with actual pastors because I've been teaching and all this stuff, Okay, that really is happening. So I, somebody, somebody was, somebody was saying to me just la this last week that that's happening in my annual, my home annual conference, the Rio Texas conference, where churches are either doing like like aspiring pastors who are going to be like, look at me, I've right. got Zoom, and I can do Zoom with look, I'm reaching three thousand people. So so people are like, look, I, I've reached three thousand people online so i'm super successful and then you've got a few pastors who are like look at me i'm reopening up with you know strength and courage and you know i'm guessing borrowed masculinity but it's just <laughs> that, that thing. yeah no i it, that's i i will say it's the Institute on Religion and Democracy is not funded by Methodists. If right. you look at who's funding the Institute on Religion and Democracy, the which Cokes. has been working on dividing, and they're so opportunistic and brilliant, they work on dividing mainline denominations. They've done a very effective job of it, and now our general conference is postponed, so I'm sure they're going into overtime. They're funded by Catholic oligarchs, and now I'm going to sound like I'm anti Catholic, but they are funded by Catholic oligarchs. They are not fund by, funded by Methodists. And when I found that out, I was like, brilliant. So I would guess some of these dynamics are, it's always follow the money. Peter Story was one of the, one of the first Christians to say that to me, by the way, Alan. Hmm. Peter Story said, follow the money, always follow the money. So I'm guessing there's a follow the money thing going on. So you wrote a book on Julian of Norwich. I got the opportunity. I bought it, Amy Laura. I bought it. Um, it's in my it's in my ownership of my little library. Um, but she she you know Julian of Norwich lived through a plague. Um, you know probably the thing she's most famous for is the thing you see plastered everywhere. You know all will be well, and every manner of things shall be well. But can you talk a little bit about Julian of Norwich, in terms of your academic study of her and? You know, what does her experience offer us during a time of pandemic? Yeah, so so my very first semester teaching at Duke in 1999, I had a syllabus. I looked at the syllabus for my introduction to Christian ethics class and it had only men. I had assigned only men, all male syllabus. And I looked at it and I was like, this is unacceptable. I've got to assign a woman from the tradition but I hadn't been taught any. I mean, like this whole Susanna Wesley thing, I was like, <laughs> right. yes, you know, like it's, anyway. Um, so I, I started asking people, who should I assign? And somebody said to me, you should assign Julia Norwich. You know, she said all, she, I had no idea who she was. 
And they said, you know, she wrote, all shall be well, all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well. And the first thing in my head was, that's so stupid. That's so not true. I do not want anything to do with this insipid theology. So, but she kept coming up. And eventually I went ahead and said, okay, I'll read her Revelations of Divine Love. And I got the Penguin Edition, the Spearing Translation, the Penguin Edition. And I started reading it and I started reading it alongside several different accounts of the, that period in that part of England's history. And I couldn't have, I couldn't have found the patience to read her visions as radical if I didn't have several history books alongside. And one of the ones I can highly recommend is one by Fritz Bauer Schmidt. Um, something called the Bali, Julian Norwich and the Body Politic. I'll have to look it up, but I can, I can, it's University of Notre Dame Press. But I started reading Julian of Norwich, started teaching Julian of Norwich, and I was teaching for the first time in the South. I grew up in the Southwest, not the South. It was my first time to teach in the South, and I was teaching that we are all one blood. So I was teaching Julian of Norwich, her visions of, of being kinned, all of us kinned as one blood, as, as having the same blood, and that is the blood of Jesus Christ. And I didn't know I was teaching something radical, because I, I didn't grow up in the South. I, I didn't know, but I could, I could see in the classroom as certain students were being, they were very uncomfortable with this. It was like, we believe this, right? Like we, I didn't, it, it was starting to dawn on me that, that the sense that human beings are all kinned by Jesus's blood was that we are all family. That we're actually family and that there aren't different kinds of blood. That right, because the fear in the South is mis. How do you say messages? I can't even say the miscegenation. word. Miscegenation. Miscegenation. Yeah, I mean that's the fear, right? You were, and, That was. I think the fear is called racism. Yes. It's yeah. The fear is called racism, and I let's not use a big word. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah, but but yeah, it's I I and I'm so grateful to students, Alan. I think this was a little bit before you came to Duke. I was trying to remember when, but a little bit before you came to Duke, and I have permission to share these stories. I've only, you know, I've asked, but um, I only share student stories if I've got permission to share them. But I, I had students start telling me, like, I, I, like, where is this coming from? Because this idea that there are different kinds of blood. And one woman said in the big intro class, um, so she said in front of a bunch of people, she said, my parents taught me that if a white person and a black person try to marry, it'll be like a dog and a cat trying to mate. And I was like, Jesus, wow. And this was a young woman, young woman, young, young, like she was right out of college. I think from one of, one of the Bible Belt states, I'm sorry not to remember, but she gave me permission to share everything but her name. Um, but all these students were nodding their heads, black and white. 
And I was like, where the freaking flu flaw am I? That this is a thing that y'all were taught. But they were taught this. And then one of the older white women said, it's in the Bible. I was like, where in the Bible? And I don't even remember where, but they all knew the same verse in the Bible. Uh, it's something from the Old Testament. I don't remember, but I, I just was like, wait, wait, since when are y'all reading the Bible this closely? Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, so I, I, Julian of Norwich, if I'd been teaching someplace else, she might not have become the same, the same visionary that she became for me but i i found julian was absolutely crucial to teach every single year every time i got a chance to teach her i started teaching her and about 15 years ago i decided i've got to write a book about what it's like to teach these visions and so the book is the book is short but it took me a long time to write because I was trying to write in the vernacular, like actual language that people walking around in the world could understand. Um, and so I, I worked on that book for about 15 years. So I'm, I, I will risk saying I'm very proud of that book and I hope you in, end up enjoying it. I mean, enjoy. Yeah, I had the I had the pleasure to skim it today, but I didn't get to well, didn't get to, to. It's got a great cover. It, it does. Just say that. It's an award winning cover. cover. I mean, the cover is is unbelievable. I mean, the, I mean, the cover to yes. I mean, I, I was a religion major in college, and I and I had never come across her. I mean, our, our sort of token woman, you know, and not and not in a bad way, but just in the like when we did I did Christian theology in college was was Saint, was uh, Teresa of Avila, and, uh-huh. and she you uh-huh. know um and, and that's fine. She's another um, one that gets reduced to platitudes. Yeah, right. Exactly. I yeah. mean, so, I mean, oh, I, yeah. And, I, but I, I, you know, that she yeah. as a mystic, she's not something I identify with. But Julian, I feel like when when we when when in in your ethics intro, when we were sort of forced to engage her, you know, and we and you and, and and you were able to, for me anyways, to connect it with this right this real life experience at Trinity, a church that later on I would start attending once I wasn't working in churches and when I was doing my my other masters, uh, right? Like, there's this whole fight about like, well. What do um, what do we do with communion? We're serving food. Should people be wearing gloves? You know, that was a real conversation. And, and I've been thinking for like the last three weeks, I'm like, this is going to be the same conversation we're about to have in we a are, much yes. co- wider way and in a way where I may actually receive very clear instructions from the, from the, from the bishop or from others about how we have to do it this way now. And so, you know, I mean, I've spent... You know, well, I graduated in Duke from Duke in 2008, and so I've been in, in churches since then, actively resisting like the, the 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 like when I do communion of like the holy hand sanitizer, where people make this big deal about it and it becomes a liturgical action. I've spent that time teaching other pastors like if you need to use hand sanitizer, you go ahead, but it doesn't need to be part of the liturgy. It doesn't need to be because people would do this number, so you see them. And so, like at our yes. church, we, I have a lavabo. I have a, a soap, a soap and water. In addition, I wash my hands, but I don't. I don't. You know, I, I'll never forget. I mean, I don't know if I've ever told you the story, and I don't want to get too lost. But the very first Sunday, I was a pastor. I swear to you, the very first Sunday at my very first church. Uh, you know, and I, you know, and 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 the reason I love you is because like you're besides Jesus, like you're like the small voice in my head, like holding me accountable to stuff. But anyways, the very first Sunday at that church, you're we right went, there with we, Jesus. Yeah, anyway. right. We went to serve <laughs> communion. I, I swear, this is I love this. Morgan, I'll tell the story to each other all the time. 
anyways, we go up, I serve communion, and we get in a semicircle, and I'm the associate pastor of this church, and it doesn't even occur to me this is going to be a thing. And immediately, as we go up there and get ready to serve communion, the lead pastor goes to each of us and squirts hand sanitizer in our hands. Like, and I'm thinking, oh no, this is not a thing I want to do. Like, this is not a thing I do. And so, you know, and, and, and just the, like, the liturgical action of like, <laughs> to every person up there. And I'm going, what the hell are we doing right now? You know I mean? It just, it just, you know, anyways, I just never forget that. I mean, that's always been with me because we connected in a real way that like, when we are together, what we are afraid of is each other sometimes, right? Because of our Alan, difference. Alan, do you know? Do you know when when Trinity started going like wackadoo on this? Do you remember this? I, I, I think it was before I started going there because I was I didn't I didn't when I was doing my MDiv I was working in churches and so what I did my the THM is when I started attending Trinity so it was a little later it was after so it happened. So Trinity started going wackadoo on this when we started pancakes with the people. Oh, ah, pancakes with the people. Yes, yes. So this was, it was a pancake dinner where literally anybody could just come from anywhere. And tr- and it was an effort of Trinity, which was a, a downtown Durham church to try to figure out what it meant to be a downtown Durham church, which is why Morgan and I started going there is because we liked it. It was kind of scrappy, you know, like. So it what was, was just, wrong with pancakes for the people? Well, because dirty people come and they come take communion. Oh, Black so it wasn't people. the problem with the Black it wasn't the problem people. with the uh, with the event. It was a problem with the people right. who so were because, having yeah. to actually welcome their neighbors. It was also a problem neighbors. with the event. It <laughs> was also a problem with the event. It's 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 complicated, but it was. I mean, they're dear people, but that was the thing, right? Is like you start inviting those people into the building, and then it becomes well, well, you know, you know. I mean, I always remember like at Trinity being like, oh, they caught somebody in the bathroom shooting heroin or whatever. You know, and you're like. Oh, is that true? I mean, maybe it is, but like that actually sounds like the church being the church at some point, like when you're wrestling with that, but I can see like, Apparently so, there are no, yeah. no addicts in the church. No, no addicts, not allowed. Yeah. I mean, that, that was things. So you start inviting out quote unquote outsiders in and suddenly you're afraid of mixing. Well, well, if we're all taking, if we're taking communion by intention, you know, we all know what happens. Like sometimes people's fingers touch the juice or like, you know, people just let it go or like the worst, the worst is, and usually I can like, stiff arm people and keep them from doing it is where they put it in their mouth and then they're like, Oh <laughs> shoot, I didn't, I didn't dip it yet. And they pull it back out of their mouth and try to dip it. Like, no, no, I got more bread. I got plenty of bread. It's fine. But it happened. That happens all the time. And so people imagine that and they're like, I can't do that with those people. And so they started arguing about like, should we, should we be wearing, uh, you know, plastic gloves? Should plastic we, like, gloves. You know, that was like, when the plastic you know, gloves started. You know, should we have like little yeah. tongs and like put them in people's hands? And I mean, that kind of stuff. <laughs> and, and I'm, and I'm already like having hives knowing that we have to go back at some way to reopen the church. And we're all like in Virginia, we are not authorized to do online communion, which I'm glad about. Cause I don't think it's a thing, but, but knowing that, like we haven't had communion in two months now and we're going to want it when we get back. And how the heck are we going to do it? I, yeah. I mean, I, I think about it every day. Are clergy not allowed to go to places and do and, and distribute communion in person? Like to people, no. everyone's shut in right now. Yeah, no, you, you know, you can't. I mean, so basically, I mean, I mean, our, I mean, it's so first of all, the guidance has not been universal across the United Methodist Church, which I think is silly. But anyways, um, and so some places we've got are allowing, guidance on gay people. We can't, right. like, <laughs> yeah. We've got but, guidance. Right. On, and then, like, or, 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 or even, or, I mean, to put it a different way, they're okay with it not being univer- universal across the church in this area. Okay. But they, but they, everything, everybody has to believe the same, everything about everything, about everything else. I don't get too lost in that. But anyways, so what, it, what we've essentially done in Virginia is said, 
this is a time either you you either sort of develop like a like a it's just like a spiritual fast, right? It's like you you desire it, right? It's a spiritual communion, you desire communion, or you have love feast and you make sure people know it's not communion. But w- w- I'm not visiting people because I'm trying to care for them. They don't want me to come see them because they're afraid I'm oh. going to bring it into their house, you know. And you've so. got kids and you're also dealing right. Right. I mean, I mean, it's perfectly reasonable and no one's mad about it, but we are going to want to have communion when we get back. I mean, that, that's Can I ask, okay, here's a suggestion. Here's a suggestion. I, so Jennifer Woodruff Tate, Jennifer Woodruff, she may, she may, her, her editing, her editing name may be Jennifer Woodruff, um, is the editor of Christian History Journal, the Christian History Journal. I'm sorry, I, I can't remember the name of the journal and I'm embarrassed. Jennifer, please forgive me if you hear this. But Jennifer is working on a journal issue that's going to be all about church's responses to the 1918 pandemic, hmm. the 1918 flu. Um, and I think that going to sources to figure out how churches dealt with this okay. in, in, in that period is going to be more useful just pragmatically, like theologically. Julian, she's your gal. Like, yay, like read Julian. Practically, pragmatically, it might be interesting. I think it would be interesting. I wanna, I wanna read those journal articles. She's, sure. she's editing a whole, a whole issue of that journal. And if somebody could figure out how to link that, that would be really helpful. Um yeah, I'll have to check that I'm out. I'm sorry not to remember. I think church, church history, Christian history. But her, her name is Jennifer Woodruff. Her PhD is from Duke, and she's she's editing a whole journal issue on practical responses. Because one of the things that I am I may be making this up in my head because I'm exhausted, but I'm not. Y'all haven't exhausted me. I'm just I'm just tired. <laughs> okay, we're tired too. <laughs> um, but it, something in my head, I'm trying to remember when churches started using the little cups. Oh, right. Yeah. Do you remember the little cups? Yeah. Yeah. And there, I mean, and there's some good, I mean, there's, well, we can talk I think about this later, but there's some, there's some articles about that. Right. I mean, right. They started, I mean, it probably was in, in that area and it was, and it was a marketing strategy, right. Is it's more hygienic to have everybody to have their own little cup than sharing a cup and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that is, that was part of how that, that process was marketed was, was towards, Hey, let's try to you know let's try to give everybody their own cup. Even though I always think that's bunk because if everybody has the little cups, little like old ladies like nails are always going like when they go to pull them out of the tray, they're always going there. So, so the last two questions we always have uh, two things we ask you. One is to identify a nonprofit that's near and dear to your heart that we can help highlight as part of this broadcast um, that might drive some support to that organization. Have you given any thought to that? The American Civil Liberties Union. Oh, I love your face. All right. ACLU. Be a card-carrying member of the ACLU. Yes, ma'am. And I could I could keep going as to why, but if you care about civil liberties, if you care, there there is an intersection of people who care about civil liberties that. Um, yeah, the ACLU is a very dangerous organization. Agreed. In all good ways. Agreed. We have what we call on Spotify our uh, shelter and playlist. So it's a each time we have a guest on, we ask them uh, what their what, what a song that is giving them shelter right now, and then we give our own picks for the week. So, Emilar, do you have a song f- to add to our shelter and playlist? 
I don't have one individual song because if I just choose one, I have been hula hooping again. I, I go through times in my life it, it, since 2011, which, which is when I, I went through my divorce. So after 2011, I started hula hooping and periodically I have to tap into Rage Against the Machine. Yes. So I've been hula hooping to Rage Against the Machine. Joey is very impressed. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I mean, yeah, but it's hard for me to choose just one, but I, I will say that the, the song, the, the song, I, I, I'm sorry. I, I think this is original to them. Um, so this is, this is the song that, that ends with bless you. I won't do what you tell me. <laughs> yes. Bless you. I yeah, won't bless do you. what you tell yes, me. That's the Bless you. I won't do what you tell me. I think I need I, that on a t-shirt. Yeah. Yeah. Bless you. I won't do what you tell me. I, I, in 2011, when I was teaching the intro class and the Arab spring, yeah. we, like Arabs, the, the whole, like all of that was going on with the, the resistance to torture, the WikiLeaks where, um, you know, Bradley Manning, who was, he was going by Bradley Manning now, Chelsea Manning, um, all of that was happening and I was teaching a big Christian ethics class and I told y'all like I, I just I just like looked out at the class and I said y'all are so way too young to be this scared because I would broach topics and they would look at each other like she's talking about this I was like y'all are so too young to be this scared so you need to start practicing bless you I won't do what you tell me bless you I won't do what you tell me and that's the song that has, I, I've been thinking about trying to figure out how to, how to record a reading where I could read the lyrics to that song and give different emphasis on different words. Um, some of those that work forces are the same. That burned crosses. Burned crosses, yeah. I think we just found some our title. Some of those. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Bless you. Yeah, you just helped us title the, you the just podcast titled the episode. episode. We can call it Bless You, I Won't Do You Tell Me. That's perfect. <laughs> so what's yours, Alan? Oh, mine. Uh, so mine is uh, one that is not uh, probably one a lot of people are familiar with. Uh, that which is, is shocking. Shocking, <laughs> isn't it, though? So um, it is a, by a band called Common Rider off of their album Last Wave Rockers. Like um, Rider? Al- like Riding? Yeah, Riding. Common Rider. Uh, oh. And so they have... Um, the, so the, it, the, the voice, if you listen to it, will sound familiar. The lead singer of that band is Jesse Michaels, who was the lead singer of Operation Ivy in the late 80s, sort of a ska punk You're band. You're just like do- deep uh, diving. Oh, deep dive. Uh, anyways, they have a great... So I've been listening... For some reason, this album's really been like just on repeat for me lately, uh, like last week or so. Um, but they have a great song um, uh, on the album called A Place Where We Can Stay. And I just have been thinking about like shelter and place and displacement. And so when I listen to that song, it just kind of makes me think about some of the themes that we've been dealing with. So common writer, a place where we can stay. Send it, send it to me. Send it to me, Alan. Sure thing. Yes, we'll do. So I, in honor of uh, Amy Laura being in Texas and in honor of the song I like to play when I get drunk, because <laughs> <laughs> let's be honest, I've made, I've like acted as though y'all haven't heard this song like 50 times. And I'm like, I got this great song. <laughs> So it's, it's by this Texas artist named Ian Moore called Muddy Jesus, which is basically, you know, sort of cast Jesus in the role of this immigrant because, you know, it's a fabulous song that has been running through my head all day. Sure. 
Because, you know, Jesus lives in a ramshackle shack with a fat New Orleans junkie. Charismatic solo, so they say he born quite lucky. You're going to have to cut that out. But <laughs> Oh, yeah, I can't really sing right, things, so can I? Hey, Ian Moore, don't sue me. I'll tell you what didn't happen while you were while you missed a couple of weeks. Nobody sang? Nobody sang. God, that's So this sad. is good that you're back. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Joe I did a good job, it. but we didn't sing, neither one of us. So that's my song. That's my Texas artist we'll and my immigrant, too. my immigrant song. You know, both. So, hey, Amy, Laura, thank you so much for being on. We really do appreciate it. We're grateful for your time, and we look forward to chatting with you maybe on the next podcast when when Alan and them get that get the theological great minds podcast together, whatever we end up calling that. Yes, and if you're listening, we want to hear from you for your Shelter and Playlist song as well, so please make sure to send that to us. You can send it to us uh, on social media. You can also go to our website, soulgroupmedia.com, S-O-U-L-G-R-O-U-P-M-E-D-I-A.com, and we will love to hear, and we will add your submissions if you send them to us. Uh, Thanks for hunkering down with us. We hope you'll join us next time. Shelter in Place is an original podcast of Soul Group Media. It's produced by Joey Porch of Liquor Sickle Productions. The theme song was written and performed by Joey and Zella Porch. If you would like to find out more about the podcast and Soul Group Media, you can visit our website, soulgroupmedia.com. That's S-O-U-L-G-R-O-U-P-M-E-D-I-A.com. Or find us on social media. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and review. It helps others to find the podcast and hunker down with us. 